Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've been telling all of you uh, this week on Bloomberg Radio and Television the anticipation for the speech by Chairman Powell at Jackson Hole. We need to stop and explain Jackson Hole. It is a beautiful place with mountains that only Michael McKee has climbed uh, across the lake with a moose in the background and the lodge. I've had the privilege of being there for some very important meetings during the financial crisis, but this year is absolutely unique, run by the Kansas City Fed and their wonderful and interesting Esther George. Jackson Hole will be a virtual meeting. To begin our coverage, our Michael McKee spoke with Esther George and they began Again, on the framework at hand. Let's listen. I will just offer you from my perspective that this has been, I think, a useful process. It's been a process that really uh, asked our, of ourselves to look at what we've learned over the past decade to try to think about how the economy may have changed and importantly to think about how we communicate to the public. So the process in and of itself, I think, has been a useful one. And I will leave to the chairman to talk about what we've learned from that. Well, you've been considered an inflation hawk. Where are you on this idea of average inflation targeting? So my focus on inflation, Mike, as you've known, is to be uh, true to our price stability mandate, uh, that our 2% target um, really has to represent what's happening in the real economy. And so as we think about ways to better communicate to the public, um, I've never thought of 2% as a ceiling, but to really stay focused on what anchors inflation expectations in the economy. So from a communication standpoint, um, I think we will be talking about the kinds of things that help us uh, do a better job of achieving our objectives. Wall Street's betting, or at least many people on Wall Street are betting, that the Fed will change its forward guidance in September. Some of your colleagues say don't need to do that yet. Where are you? So I would agree when I look at what the Federal Reserve has done since March um, in terms of interest rate policy, in terms of asset purchases and the credit facilities we've had. I think trying to gauge what else does the economy need is probably premature. I think we are beginning to see signs of a recovery. We're beginning to see um, where the economy may have shortfalls, where it may be doing okay, but that is gonna take some time. So uh, thinking about what those other things are, I think has been a useful discussion. Whether it's time to activate those things uh, is something we'll be debating. Well, in the run-up to your conference and uh, Chairman Powell's speech, there's an awful lot of discussion about inflation going on uh, on Wall Street and in the financial community. Um, do you think that the, all the stimulus that's been pumped into the economy is perhaps an inflation danger down the road? Well, as a central banker, I think we always keep our eyes on inflation and what impetus may come to that. I think importantly, what we see today are really generally deflationary kinds of forces. So until demand comes back, until we see the economy regain its footing, it's hard to see in the near term. But as you point out, there is a lot of stimulus that may be out there at the point that the economy regains its footing. 
And we'll have to look and see what uh, impact we see through prices at that point. But today is probably not that day. Well, let's focus on your district, the 10th district. Uh, how would you describe the economy there right now? So I think we see some encouraging signs. Uh, this region, of course, has experienced the virus in different timeframes and uh, different levels of spread over the last five months. And what we see overall is there has been some improvement in the job market. We have seen some businesses that are beginning to come back. But of course, that's coming back from a very low level. Uh, particular to this region, of course, things like agriculture and energy are very prominent. Uh, we know the farm sector has been under some stress for some time with low farm incomes. And this episode puts further stress on that, causing the farm sector to have to rely more heavily, for example, on uh, government supports. Energy, too, with the rapid decline in oil prices, um, productivity, uh, and the producers had to lay down their rigs. Uh, so those two sectors in particular in our region, uh, already under some stress, it will take some time, I think, for them uh, to come back. If I could ask you to expand on the, the labor market, what are employers telling you right now? Do they need more people? Can they find more people? Or are they just sitting back at this point and saying, we have to wait and see where the economy goes? So we hear a variety of things that won't surprise you, but uh, very important as we've talked to our contacts in the region, again, it is often a function of the sector they're in. If they're in a part of the economy where they're dependent on air travel, dependent on entertainment or uh, dining, uh, they are struggling and having a harder time. And bringing people back in those sectors looks to be uh, some time away. We also hear uh, that some are having a hard time bringing people back because they felt like they were competing with some of the jobless benefits. Whether that's true today um, is less clear. So there are a number of dynamics that are affecting that labor market. And that, of course, is why it will take us some time to see where does all this shake out in terms of how that labor market heals and how we begin to see growth resume in the economy. Esther George of the Kansas City Fed. Right now, as we look to Jackson Hole, right now, as we look to the American economy, Peter Hooper has provided extraordinary leadership at Deutsche Bank to do the hardest thing in economics, which is to put a team together where you lean forward. And it's anything from George Saravelos in London and Alan Ruskin, of course, over to Matt Lizzetti and the U.S. economic team as well. Peter, how has your team adjusted in the last number of days? Are you marking down Q3 and Q4 economic growth? Uh, well, Tom, we have not yet marked down uh, growth. The numbers have actually, until yesterday's uh, uh, confidence slip, uh, numbers have been coming in a bit stronger. Uh, and uh, despite the, the setbacks on, on the virus side, uh, we, we were in, inclined to mark up our second half numbers just a bit in, in light of data coming in. Now, uh, we had an interesting discussion on the fiscal side. Obviously, if we don't get a resolution uh, we're assuming one and a half trillion uh, in, in fiscal support uh, coming along here uh, soon. Uh, if that doesn't materialize, then it's, it's a very different picture. But uh, assuming we get the fiscal support, uh, the numbers so far uh, say that uh, our, our, our five and a half percent uh, growth number uh, decline for the year may be a little bit too weak. 
uh, things looking just a little stronger. And and today's uh, durable goods report uh, uh, certainly shaded slightly on that side as well. When you talk about the fiscal support, it comes ahead of that jobless claims number tomorrow that is expecting to be expected to be the 23rd reading uh, at one million or more out of this past 24 weeks. Where are you seeing unemployment ending the year at this point, given the ongoing announcements of layoffs that we keep hearing from major companies? Lisa, we, we think it'll slip. It'll get below 10 percent, but not by much. Uh, we're some, somewhere in the 9 percent range. Uh, this this is going to be a slow process of getting unemployment down. Uh, the, certainly uh, GDP growth, the, the level of GDP not getting back to pre uh, pre virus levels until early uh, 2022. So uh, it, it's, it's going to be it's going to be a long, slow slog on on improving this labor market substantially. I will say that the quote of the year possibly came from Vincent Deloard in a story by Bloomberg's uh, Sarah Ponzak. He said, I would summarize 2020 as the bear market for humans, where companies that had the fewest humans relative to the market value did the best, and you saw uh, humans cut in droves. What does this say in terms of wage deflation? Well, you know, we, we, it depends on, depends on the sector you're looking at. There are some shortages in some areas. We are seeing some increase, but, but over, overall, I think in the service sector, the sectors where you've seen a sharp cutback in demand is likely to persist for some time until we get the vaccine, until that's widely available. And we're not assuming we'll be there until probably the middle of next year uh, with, with something that's widely available and effective. Um, it, it's going to be it's going to be a, a, a negative uh, for 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 wage uh, uh, wage inflation, uh, certainly. Um, households have obviously household income has gotten a huge boost on the fiscal side. You've seen incomes uh, rise substantially. Um, that that points to the uh, critical importance of getting something done here uh, in in the weeks ahead. Getting a resolution on on this uh, uh, support package. Uh, if we don't get it, uh, we're looking at the possibility of a double dip recession, Q4, Q1, uh, and uh, further negatives on wage inflation, certainly. Okay, this is an incredibly important statement by Dr. Hooper, folks. Let me explain this again. Um, the standard NBER discussion of negative uh, GDP two quarters in a row, Q4, Q1. And I know it's squishy, and Dr. Hooper's not like getting out a, a calculator to figure that out. But the idea of going back into recession, Peter, is across a country of immense inequalities. How have our politicians not acted so far? We see action in Germany, action in the United Kingdom, and we can't seem to get it done to avoid the Hooper recession. <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, Hooper recession if, if we get uh, no further fiscal support, if the vaccine doesn't materialize until well into next year. Uh, I mean, we're looking at some some clear negatives here. As I said, the data up to now have been a little bit more positive, but slippage on slippage on uh, consumer confidence uh, uh, and the possibility of further setbacks uh, on on uh, COVID nineteen as we go into the winter months. Um, these 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 all uh, say we're 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 looking at uh, the, the potential for a more negative picture than certainly built into the market at this point. I will just say, Peter, one of the big confusing points for me is that as we talk about the potential for a double dip recession and yet the support that we've seen from the Federal Reserve, from easing of credit uh, standards, 
We are seeing an actual tightening in lending standards by banks. And this comes from Goldman Sachs. They put out a report showing the fastest pace of tightening uh, in, in loans to businesses uh, over the past couple of months, going back to the last recession. Does this concern you? Is this the banks seeing something that the rest of the market isn't? Well, Lisa, it's interesting. Yes, those lending standards have been tightening uh, Im impressively, uh, as, as you would expect when economic situation uh, deteriorates significantly. Uh, at the same time, uh, the default rate, which normally uh, catches up to these, these kinds of tightening standards, has, has not really uh, moved that much. I think, I think the aggressiveness of the fiscal response that we saw initially, the and, and the, the, the the support through PPP, the and the Fed's uh, uh, Main Street lending facility waiting in the wings. It hasn't been a factor yet, but we do expect it will become more important. Uh, all of these are leading to a little bit of a disconnect between this tightening of standards and uh, the, the, the eventual fallout in terms of uh, what, what's going to happen as credit crunch hits businesses. Peter Hooper, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank. Greatly appreciate it and look forward to your thoughts after Jackson Hole as well, head of their economic research. Right now, in arguably the interview of the day on what doesn't matter at the conventions, Libby Cantrell joins us now with PIMCO, head of public policy. Libby, I spoke with Westerman of Arkansas yesterday. He says hot springs in southern Arkansas, western Arkansas are doing well. They're removed from all of his trauma. And then you go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the uproar of the last three days, including deaths last night. And in between, there's a huge part of the country desperate for stimulus. Can we get stimulus once this convention's over? Yeah, well, good morning, Tom. Yeah, I mean, we've, um, we at PIMCO have, and, and I specifically have been talking about that additional stimulus was a, a question of, of when, not if. Now, that win has definitely taken longer, certainly, than <laughs> I thought it was going to. Um, the the sort of the, the perennial stumbling blocks around the level of benefit, uh, specifically as it relates to unemployment insurance, uh, local and state funding, a big issue for Democrats. They got very little in the CARES Act, uh, you know, $150 billion for states and cities. Democrats want more in this next round. And then you know, funding for USPS. Um, these are the obstacles really to getting a deal. I continue to think there is a framework for a deal. I think that the inflection point will likely be the end of September, though. That is when Congress has to come together to pass a funding bill to avoid a government shutdown. So we may have to wait until then. Well, um, and again, we thought it was going to happen sooner, but some of these partisan issues just got, have gotten in the way. Libby, Lisa Bramowitz mentioned brilliantly, American Airlines, 19,000. They're taking a 40,000 down with early retirement. Best Buy out with 2,800, whatever the number is. Are politicians in your world moved by actual firings? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that I think if you, if you talk to folks on the Hill, they, there is an acknowledgement that certainly um, the, the economy needs another shot in the arm. I think these headlines certainly underscore that. Um, so, again, I think that the there is a broader acknowledgement that the political risk in particular going into the election without having additional stimulus, uh, sort of speaking to your point, just the headline risk of going into the election, companies announcing more firings is just too great for politicians. So again, I think they will come together to pass something, just taking 
taking longer than certainly what we expected. So we're not hearing much noise out of Washington right now other than the RNC and the DNC. And yet every week that goes on, economists say hurts uh, the economy based on lack of extension of this program. When you talk to portfolio managers within PIMCO, how do you help them gauge the risk of a prolonged negotiation process? When can they expect some sort of deal to get done? And what are the consequences of the delay? Yeah, I mean, the earliest at this point, given that you know, folks are on the Hill are out for their uh, their usual August recess, really is going to be middle of September at the very earliest, but that's when they come back. So that would you know, be predicated on a deal being struck before then, but probably, as I said, late September. Um, again, that is when Congress has to come together to pass a funding bill to avoid a government shutdown, and it looks very likely that these two things are combined. And from an economic perspective, we are seeing some states uh, apply for that added benefit uh, that the president authorized uh, under his executive order. There's some issues with that. And of course, that benefit is about half of what we saw under the, the CARES Act. Um, and it only lasts for you know, sort of four to five weeks. So there is a risk, obviously, and we're, we're seeing some of the de- prim- preliminary data, c- consumer confidence is lagging. Uh, you're seeing some other uh, data metrics that the economy is once again slowing. So again, I think there's a broad acknowledgement on the Hill that something needs to be done. Um, it's just a question of, of how they get there. Is it an underpriced risk that it's gonna take a while? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, the market does seem to be priced in, in uh, sort of pricing in some additional stimulus. And so certainly that is a tail risk. If everything falls apart uh, in October, we don't have a deal. Folks will be back in their districts campaigning for the election. And then it does look very unlikely that you get something until after the election. So that certainly is, you know, is a tail risk. It doesn't seem that markets are necessarily focused on that. Libby, in your world, is there a middle ground is there a middle Democrat, a middle Republican, and do they have political power, a political voice now and after November? Yeah, I mean, Tom, it's, it's a great question. Um, there, there are certain constituencies on Capitol Hill. There's the Problem Solvers Caucus that is a bipartisan caucus that is um, sort of aimed at that center demographic that you, that you talk yeah. about. Um, and we'll see. I mean, this will obviously be predicated on the election outcome. But something I think is sort of important, especially for the markets to keep in mind, if there is a Democratic sweep. So if Joe Biden is elected to president, Democrats control the, the Senate and, and win back control of the Senate. You have to remember that who are those Democrats that are making those majorities in both the House and the Senate? They're actually from either purple districts or even red districts or red states. Um, so there will be kind of a more moderating force within the Democratic Party uh, who are probably going to be more inclined to sort of reaching across the aisle. So I don't think, you know, centrism uh, is, is totally dead. But obviously, over the last decade or so, our politics have become so polarized. Gerrymandering, I think, has exacerbated mm-hmm. this. Lack of earmarks have exacerbated this. So um, there's certainly the demographic, but it is it is sort of uh, a smaller one, unfortunately. Libby Cantrell, thank you so much with PIMCO. I think there's a lot of unique opportunities that are available to people who, who, who are creative, who have a vision for the future. I think, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, we'll look back and there'll be 10, 20, 30 world-class companies that were created by people who we probably think are thinking are crazy right about now. 
the gentleman from Pittsburgh, Mark Cuban. What an interesting life at University of Pittsburgh. And on he went to huge prosperity, including invigorating, many would say, enthusiasm, uh, literally how an owner should be within sports, with his Dallas Mavericks as well. Always an eventful interview, made more so by David Rubenstein and peer-to-peer, uh, the gentleman from Carlisle Group. And, of course, we've been thrilled with his wonderful interviews. Well, how do you prepare for a Mark Cuban interview, David Rubenstein? book i read that um he he's got lots of press so he's i read all the articles about him over the last two years or so but he is a person that uh uh, is very smart i mean if you don't know him you might think he's just a bombastic person who spouts out things at basketball games but he's a very very smart person he built a company way ahead of the uh technology revolution sold at a big price and he managed to um make certain that the profits didn't go away when the tech bubble burst occurred and uh, he's made a lot of money over the years, but he's actually very thoughtful. And I think the interview was much more uh, impressive than I thought it might have been. You have been good at gauging politicians to be. It is the discussion of Mark Cuban entering American politics. Any inclination of that? Well, like a lot of people who make a lot of money and don't know what to do with themselves afterwards because they've got all the material things they want, they say, why not run for president of the United States? This idea has occurred to a couple of people, obviously. <laughs> And um, Mark Cuban actually was a friend of uh, of uh, Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, when he was running for president, initially talked to Mark because he thought Mark was supporting him. Then ultimately, Mark decided not to. But Mark looked at running for president this time and concluded, after doing some polling, that he wouldn't get very far and didn't want to do it. His family also wasn't in favor of it. But he's still only 62 years old, and he could run again. So do you expect Mark Cuban 2024? You know, I think there'll be a lot of people in 2024, but I would say uh, the idea that a wealthy business person who has a lot of money to spend uh, could run for president of the United States and actually win is not as ridiculous as it once was. So I wouldn't rule anything out, but Mark is actually very creative. And what he's done with the Mavericks is pretty impressive. He bought it for about $280 million. It's probably worth two and a half to three billion now. Um, And he's would say the biggest problem he has in his life, I said, Mark, you know, everything seems to work perfectly for you. What problems do you have in life? He said, well, I have a teenage daughter. And managing a teenage daughter is more problem than, than anything else I've ever had. Uh, that, would be, that would be true uh, <laughs> as uh, well. Um, you know, I, it's time for a surveillance correction, folks. I did mention the Pittsburgh affiliation of Mr. Cuban. But Lucas from Bloomington emails in and says, hey, stupid, he went to Indiana University. Lisa, pick it up from there. <laughs> he, he's, from, he's from Pittsburgh. He grew up in Pittsburgh, but Indiana University had a business school, which we could afford. He didn't have any money. And so uh, he's from a Jewish family. His name was changed, I guess, somewhere in Ellis Island. Uh, and uh, uh, he went to Indiana, made a fair amount of uh, money as a bartender and so forth, then moved to Dallas because the weather was good. He said the women were beautiful and he wanted to just have a nice lifestyle. And there were some jobs there. But he, he started a number of businesses and he's done quite well over over many years, almost everything he's touched has worked out well. Yeah, and uh, when he was talking about the NBA, he was saying he would welcome a Jewish player, or frankly, any player, uh, (laughs) even from Mars, if they could win. I am wondering, David, talking about all of that money that Mark Cuban has, what's he buying? Well, interestingly, he's been a longtime owner of Netflix shares and Amazon shares, and he would say a large part of his net worth is actually the, the money he's invested in those companies. He has been, in the past, a stock trader, and he knows a lot about tech stocks. But he says right now, there aren't that many tech stocks to buy, so just load up on the really good ones and and go for a ride. 
David, this is really important. I want to rip up the script here. I just think it's so, so important. David, you mentioned something really important. And the guys are entrepreneurial and maybe they're like Carlisle with private equity. But so much of the wealth construction of these people, including Mr. Buffett's very successful Apple investment, is making conventional share investments. Do we underestimate that in the media, that they just make sound, conventional, traditional share investments? Well, the tradition has been uh, generally that if you make private investments, you can add value to them and ultimately the return will be greater. And the return has been good in the private equity world. However, mm -hmm. if you bought Amazon, Netflix, uh, Apple, uh, those kind of companies five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, six months ago, you would have done spectacularly well. If you take those companies out of the uh, stock market indexes, the indexes aren't mm -hmm. doing quite as well. But those companies have just driven everything. And it's just uh, my big mistake that I sold after the IPO, my shares in uh, in Amazon. Well, within that, and that's okay, David. I was in triple leveraged all cash, so you know that's that's how well I did. David, what are the opportunities right now with all this cash sitting around? It's almost too good to be true. The, the the trillions of dollars of cash on the sidelines. Well, it depends on what you are interested in. If you're in public shares, I do think the public shares are pretty high right now, so I would be a little leery. Um, and I do think that after the election, whoever wins, you'll probably see some softening of the market because I think the federal government will probably not be able to put that much money back into the economy compared to what it's already done. In the private sector, in the private uh, equity world, I do think there's some opportunities, but nothing is cheap today. Uh, it used to be you would buy a company in a private setting for eight or nine times cash flow. Today, they're 14 or 15 times cash yeah. flow. And you just have to either accept it or you're not going to be uh, buying anything. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. We're really looking forward thank to you. Mark Cuban, a peer-to-peer -peer conversation with Mr. Rubenstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.